Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Vilander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. We promised you on Twitter and in the last podcast that Catherine Whittaker would be coming live from Monte Carlo this week, didn't we? Well, couldn't really get much more different to that because it's me, David Law, sitting in London. And I don't have Catherine Whittaker alongside me. Yes, she is sunning it up in Monte Carlo, but is she doing a tennis podcast? Is she heck? Well, she says that she's too busy, that she's got lots of other commitments this week. So... I've had to find somebody else to speak to. Fortunately, I've got somebody far better than Catherine Whittaker to speak to because the former British number one, Jeremy Bates, is here. Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm very good, David. Yeah, this is a very fine introduction. <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> oh, let me make it better. Former world number 54, reached the last 16 of Wimbledon, won mixed doubles titles at Wimbledon and the Australian Open alongside Joe Jury been a captain of the Davis Cup team in Great Britain. Uh, I mean, it just goes on and on, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, and uh, also, Jeremy, you, you, these days you're you're part of the, the British tennis scene once more. And what, what is your role these days? Um, I, I'm uh, part of the coaching team and the performance coaching team working in women's tennis. I've um, uh, been now on the sort of WTA ITF tour for the best part of five years and um, started off with Anne Kjothevong, spent uh, a good couple of years with her and, and spent six months or so with Heather while she was um, returning to the tour after her illness. And then the, the last couple of years, mainly been um, trying to um, help the, the, you know, the, some of the younger girls who are sort of aspiring, coming out of juniors, going on to the pro tour, aspiring to be good professionals, um, and working with them as a, a team, you know, traveling to the 10Ks, the 15Ks, 25s, what have you. Um, I spent a fair amount of time doing that and also at some of the high performance centers working with, working with the players. And it, it's been a process of trying to also, you know, identify some of the, the players from a young age. And, and that's what I need to spend more time on now, trying to look to see... Um, you know, the, the younger ones coming through sort of 13, 14, that type of an age, you know, who, who have aspirations to be tennis players and, and, and just basically it's sort of trying to, you know, assist, support, influence, help, whatever word you want to say, you know, coaches in their individual pro- programs working with the players and, you know, it's a very tough journey, isn't it? You, you, you don't see many players on their own on the tour these days and, and there's an awful lot to learn. There's one thing sort of putting all the work in, if you like, at base, but then when you start going out into big wide world, it's a different conversation conversation and and um, and so you know that's the majority of my time obviously also here at the NTC there are um, camps which are run on a week by week basis for the girls across all different ages and it's good to get a wide spectrum of uh, talented youngsters together and uh, and so it's, it's a it's a combination of a lot of things and you, you mentioned uh 
Anki Othavong and Heather Watson. And it's one thing to, to travel with those players to some of the some of the nicer spots, I suppose. Not always nice spots uh, on the WTA circuit. And it's a different kettle of fish, isn't it? When you're trying to help players make that transition, I suppose, whether it's from the junior ranks to the seniors, whether it's from the outskirts of the of the the challenger circuit or the future circuit onto the main tour what what do you think are the keys because it you've been in this business most of your life and it is a it can be a bit of an unforgiving world can't it you you have to be i imagine pretty tough yeah you have to be very tough i mean where it gets difficult you know is if you if you start um uh, going to going to events. Let's say you go on a four-week trip and you don't play very well the first week. You have to practice. We uh, get ready for the second week. Maybe you don't play very well that week either. And then going to the third week as well. I mean, sometimes you can be away for a, a month at a time, for argument's sake, and not have great results. And the key to that is that you have to keep doing the work. You have to keep putting the hours in and all the time. And and um, and and the, and the whole thing, you know, is an educational process in in terms of how much time you spend in the gym, on the court, practicing. You know, where you were going to be what you were going to do particularly and I think that um, the you make a differentiation between obviously what Anne and Heather were doing and yes they were playing great events in really nice places but you know I just came back from China in, in Jiangmen in, in China and I've been out in Thailand I was in India just before Christmas and um, and all of these tournaments these days they are good tournaments they are really good tournaments you don't go to to places that aren't great that you know they it, it's a luxury world the ones that the, the top players are living in but you know even 10k level 15k level the courts are fine the hotel is good occasionally the food's not brilliant you know you've usually got decent weather what have you it, it is what you make of it yourself it's got nothing to do with the facilities and really is a, a, a mental process of, of learning how to cope with the, the ups and downs of the tour, understanding what it feels like to be away from home for a period of time. Is uh, it pretty addictive? Because, I mean, I remember when you retired, and we, we've commentated together before at various locations, you've you seem to have really been enjoying the process of being at an event, whether it's in a capacity of coaching or, or working with us in the media. Is it a little bit addictive? Is it hard to give up? Well, you, you, it's very hard to give up, and, and you know, it's... Um, it's an addictive uh, uh, sport or anything. If you want to be, you know, successful, if you want to coach or if you want to play, it is addictive. You know, you you, you love. I love the coal face. I still do. It always amazes me with Henners when when Henners stopped. You know, and he did his lifestyle for ten years, twelve years, what have you. Um, fantastic player, great success, and and um, you know made made a really good career for himself. And the moment he decided he was going to retire. He doesn't want to do any of it anymore, and I, I can't. I just can't relate to it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I cannot relate to it. I, I would miss the, the coalface. And believe me, it is way worse sitting on the side of the court, um, working with some players, whether it's a 10k or whether it's a 100k or whether it's a grand slam. It is way worse sitting on the side of the court, um, just trying to influence with words of encouragement than it was as an individual going out there and playing. And I, 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 yes, it's very addictive, but it's not for everybody, you know. But but the practice, the training, the lifestyle, all of that stuff, that is addictive as well, you know. That if you start to really get the bug for it and you really start to push yourself, you gain a huge amount of self self esteem. You become independent, and it gives you great skills for later on in life. Plus the experience of traveling around the world. I mean, the the pluses are endless. Um, and I get the chance to commentate with you. So it's like, what could you more, more could you want? No, no but but you, you know what I mean. You you can't dip in and out of it. It is either all-consuming, you do it, or you get out of it. And I'm sure it's the same in business and every other sport. I don't think it's different. 
Yeah, all or nothing. Now, uh, we will talk about tennis today. There's loads going on. We've seen a victory for Jack Sock and Madison Keys beaten in the final by Angelique Kerbera uh, last night. Great matches. Uh, I, I also saw that uh, Novak Djokovic has overtaken <coughs> Rafael Nadal in the world rankings that he's, in terms of the weeks he's spent at number one. We'll get on to all of that. But I just find it fascinating, really, to hear about your experiences these days and 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 staying on the circuit and and the process involved and and i just want to go back a little bit as well into the days when you were playing yourself jeremy and and think about the era that you were part of i was actually looking at some of the results now and embarrass you here (laughs) jeremy because you you've got a a victory over john McEnroe, one over boris becker you've got a, a win over andre agassi and I just, what is the highlight that stands out for you? For me, probably, uh, I have to say it was the McEnroe match because I played him in 1994 in Washington, second round, and um, it was, uh, I'd always wanted to play McEnroe, and I'd been on the tour for quite a number of years by then, and and never come across him in the draw. And I I always remember the match because um, we played at night, um, and it was sort of at the time when, you know, in the States, you play in a stadium and that you change ends and all of a sudden you'd have these booming speakers. Of, in the States, it was not music, it was adverts. I mean, now you go to Davis Cup and there's like you know, constant music all the time. But then it was quite a novelty, certainly for me. They did it in the States, but not many other places. And I always remember going out and playing McEnroe and I had 5,000 Americans who probably were not supporting me. And I decided before I played this match, I said, I've always wanted to play this guy. I mean, he was an absolute genius of a tennis player player completely unorthodox amazing skill always wanted to play him Um, and I just wanted to make sure that I remembered every minute of the occasion and as it was I played really well (laughs) and uh, I think I was 4-1 down in the third and I think I won 6-4 in the third or something so yeah so he hasn't mentioned it uh, since then because I played him about eight times on the seniors tour it has never been mentioned or discussed funny that Uh, actually you mentioned that you'd never played him Am I right in thinking you were effectively one point from playing him in 1992 at Wimbledon when you were playing against Guy Forget in that fourth round at Wimbledon? Wouldn't you have met John McEnroe in the quarterfinals that year? That is something which is... I heard about that and I've erased from my mind. <laughs> but, yeah, but now you brought it up. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, I was uh, up against Forget, yeah, serving for the match 5-4 in the... Fourth set, 30 love up on my serve, actually had match points at 40-30 at forehand past me. I don't know why you remember these things. But, um, yeah, And anyway, I ended up losing 6-3 in a fifth and uh, would have played McEnroe. And then, as it was, McEnroe chopped up Forger in the next round. And, and But it would have been great that uh, to play him at Wimbledon would have been different to playing him in Washington, you know. Maybe I had a few more people on my side. <laughs> you certainly would have done. Now, I don't want to make you feel bad here, Jeremy, but the fact of the matter is that I was at school when I was watching that Guy Forget <laughs> match. And I'm pretty old. Uh, but uh, I, I just remember the that was the first, almost the forerunner for what I remember as being Hen Mania to follow and then Andy Murray Mania after that. That was the the moment, certainly. I mean, we, we had a couple of years of it because then I think you played him again a couple of years yeah, ago, a, right. years later, didn't you? But that one, you were so close to winning, going to the quarterfinals uh, of Wimbledon, and the whole country seemed to stop for that match. It, it, it's true. Whether you know, my, my mother, my grandmother, people who don't follow tennis, who couldn't follow tennis because it was barely on satellite television uh, by then, the rest of the tennis circuit, but everything stopped for Wimbledon. What was that 
night like for you not to have won and and and, and what do you remember of it um i was i i remember having to go to the press conference i made a big mistake in sort of agreeing to do it relatively soon after the match and and uh, i i went into the to the press conference and, and i i was like in a trance i i couldn't I, I couldn't make any sort of coherent noises. Do you know what I mean? It was like almost, I was, it was an, almost like an out-of-body experience. And of course, I, I think that a few people picked up on it and, and sort of, I wouldn't say they were, they were, you know, quite vocal about it afterwards. But when I was sitting there, I, I just, I just didn't feel like I was there. I, thought, I can't, I can't put it in any other words. I mean, even later on that evening, the physical and mental exhaustion was incredible. And if I'd have won the match, I would have been absolutely fine, no doubt, to, to play on the Wednesday. All those things, they just get put back into the subconscious when the adrenaline keeps you going from winning. But um, that, that whole period of time, which went on for about 10 days, was uh, the most bizarre 10 days of my life. I've never experienced anything like it and, and certainly won't again now. Why? Well, because, I, I mean, I, I couldn't understand what the big deal was. I mean, I've been playing on the tour for, for, for 10 years. I'm playing, you know, 50 weeks of the year. I'm playing all over the world. And sure, there was always a, a highlight at Wimbledon, what have you. And so I played Chang first round and I played him on court 14, played a really good match, beat him straight sets and, and didn't think much of it. I thought, oh, that's a good start to Wimbledon. I'm ready, you know, I'm in, in a good place. And um, seven o'clock the next morning, my doorbell rings at my house, and I've got the press outside. I'm going, "What do you want?" Sort of thing. I mean, what, what, okay, so I had a good result, and that that sort of stuff carried on for ten days. And I had people sleeping in the cars outside my house. I had, I had a guy follow me to the bank. I went to practice one day, and and um, and the guy uh, was chasing me in his car. So I had a slightly faster car than he did, and I lost him in the traffic in Wimbledon. So he never knew where I was. So the next guy that died turns up on a motorbike. So, so I actually came second that time, and and this and this went on for this went on for for ten days. I could not understand why anyone was that interested in it when you know. And I I'm not going to tell you the rest of it. I mean, all the, the sorts of things happening. It's just. Um, all sorts of people turning up at the door and a couple of times I had a, a couple of very nice looking ladies turn up on the door and I you know look I, I won a tennis match what's going on and uh, I just had no perception of the perspective of something like that it just I'd, I'd beaten guys in the top five before beaten guys in the top ten before what, what's the difference but it, clearly there was one yeah I remember a, a year ago a year later it was Chris Bailey who had that incredible match against Goran Ivanisevic and he told me a, a similar story he lost to him in five sets played out of his skin you know this was a guy who had reached the one with the final and he said he remembered walking into the pub afterwards and the whole place just stopped and turned around and stared at him yeah it's uh it's bizarre, isn't it? But it's the power of media, I suppose, as well. And obviously, when you when, because it is such a focal point, like you say, back then um, there wasn't so much tennis on the TV, so it's not like you were watching it week in, week out. So there was a, a real sort of interest in Wimbledon and, and where it sat with everybody. But I mean, it, it's it's a nice thing in many ways, but it's also a bit a bit of a shock in many ways. It doesn't change you as an individual. You're just the same person. It's just the perspective of the whole thing is is quite bizarre. And it happened. I got married two months after that happened, and it was amazing because i i didn't like playing the u.s open particularly so i deliberately arranged my marriage in the middle of the u.s open one year <laughs> so, so and um i was at home um getting up the morning of my wedding and um i opened the front door just as i opened the door i saw this guy i lived in a little cul-de-sac this guy was walking down um the cul-de-sac and he saw me and i saw him and he turned around and walked straight out again 
And I thought, no, it can't be, surely, because this is August now, you know. And uh, so I walked up to him and I knocked on the window and he's pretending to read his newspaper. And I went, I said, I said, how many of you are around here? And he looked at me and goes, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, how many, how many press guys are, how many journos, photographers are there here? He said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, look, mate, let's be honest with us. I know exactly what you're doing here. I said, do me a favor. I will tell you where the wedding is. Um, please feel free to, to use that information as you would like. And I just asked one thing. I said, I'm fine with it. I'm sure you'll respect the whole thing of the day. I said, just make sure that it's good for my wife, please. Um, and fair enough, he got his car, drove off, and, and we got married in the church in Weybridge and uh, came out of the church. And there was like 10 or 15 photographers there. We did a couple of nice photos. And left. It was really nice what they did. But I couldn't believe it was a still of interest, you know. So, and are. on that subject, it's it's only now a couple of days since Andy Murray got married, and and we saw all the uh, the interest that there was in that. I just wondered, in terms of lifestyle, did did getting married change anything in your career? I'm just wondering whether Andy will feel anything differently now being a married man as yeah. opposed to being single. I, I, it definitely changes you, um, no question of doubt, and sometimes it has a, a, a good effect. I mean, I. I got married in 1992 and it was one of my best years on the tour um, and uh, that was uh, the year obviously I, I had the match um, one of the matches with Forger and um, and I think the other thing that affects it also is when you have the, the your children born you know your, your first child I think it just what it does is it just changes your mentality slightly in that you you know you, you it's a subconscious thing to a large extent but your your focus changes and the parameters change maybe and what have you but many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zep pound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. 
Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Some people, you know, they go down that route and it affects them and and the games really disappear. For me, it was both those experiences were seriously enhancing. Although, Although at the time when I was asked about it and someone said, you know, what do you think about getting married and I had to think about it and I said well it's going to halve my income <laughs> very tongue in cheek I happen to say before anyone gets really upset <laughs> so don't worry Andy we, we, we've got evidence now from Jeremy Bates that your career is going to go from strength to strength as a married man not that you ever had any doubts at all now tennis today uh, Jack Socko mentioned had a, a really good win the first title singles title of his career beating Sam Querrey last night in Houston and he's actually doing pretty well in the doubles as well Jeremy he's uh, him and uh, Vasek Pospisil have got a very nice doubles uh, team going I just wonder you know you would have played singles and doubles throughout your career do you, can you imagine that for a guy like Sock and Pospisil that they they might be able to keep this up playing both disciplines and actually doing very well at both absolutely I, I just uh, I'm surprised that more players don't do it these days you know I mean it, it was if you're not going to practice uh, if you're not going to play doubles any week then in theory you're going to spend more time you know practicing on the court aren't you well surely you've got to be better off um, actually practicing your game in a competitive situation to me, I mean, I, I think, and, and there used to be a situation where quite a few players were actually successful at doubles before they made it on the singles tour. And you have like a, you know, a different mentality in the doubles. Maybe it's more relaxing. You learn how to win. It can be very useful, apart from the obvious technical and tennis skills which are going to teach you about serving, you know, volleying more. Although these days, half of them are staying back, you know. I, I think it is a, I think it's a great skill to have. And I think more people should play singles and doubles. It. I don't necessarily buy the argument that because the singles is that much tougher these days that it takes up much more out of your body and you need to rest up more and all of this type of stuff. I think you'd struggle to sell that one to McNamara, McNamee, you know, the, the list is endless, Curran, Creek, any of these players. McEnroe. You know, McEnroe, you know, I mean, Peter Fleming, I mean, these guys top of the world in singles and doubles. Yeah, it's. I think it's just the way the tour has evolved, basically. Yeah, it's, uh, they've got used to doing it, certainly, <laughs> haven't they? And Madison Keys, we mentioned earlier on today, she actually got to uh, the clay court final in Charleston, narrowly lost to Angelique Kerber. The reason, as well as just touching on that result, the reason I bring up Madison Keys, Jeremy, is because we had Brad Gilbert as a, a guest on the tennis podcast a few weeks ago. He said, in his view, that Madison Keys is a future world number one. In as in as little as three years' time, he thinks she'll be world number one. Could you could you imagine that? It's an interesting question. I mean, in terms of looking, she's a great athlete. Um, she has some real skills. She's got to harness them. She's obviously made a big step, and I think she's working Lindsay Davenport. And and you know, you've got a great coach there as well. In, in honesty, without ducking the question, I haven't seen enough of her playing. Um, to make that judgment but I know that on her day she's capable of beating absolutely everyone I think it's very difficult to know until you know those sort of situations arise whether someone can actually cope with and uh, and be successful in the pressure of a Grand Slam semi-final a Grand Slam final maybe winning one of the titles that is a special quality it's a special element and I I always wonder whether you know you don't know until somebody gets that far whether they can actually go that extra mile. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And you can sort of see where players' limits are. 
um, in terms of ability and talent and athleticism and weaponry and power, she has all of those things without a question of a doubt. I, I think it's so difficult to know whether you can actually make that final step, you know, this far in advance. But potentially, it's a fair call. Yeah, indeed. Now, uh, I mentioned Novak Djokovic had overtaken Rafael Nadal in terms of weeks at world number one, only by a single week. But that is a heck of an achievement from Djokovic, isn't it? He sometimes goes slightly under the radar in terms of the overall debate about who's the greatest because obviously Federer's got 17 slams, Nadal's got 14, but Djokovic now, we're talking about a guy who's crept up to having eight slams of his own and he seems to be at the absolute peak of his powers now, doesn't he? Well, I think the thing with Djokovic is that he hasn't missed any time, has he? I mean, you know, Nadal has been plagued by injuries and he missed a big chunk of time in um, 2013 as well. And, and sort of what uh, Djokovic has done is he's, he's improved, he's maintained what, he's ha- what he had. I mean, he is an unbelievable athlete. And he's, his powers of recovery, you know, are, are, are second to none. And, and really what's happened is that because of his winning, he now, I think, is, is not uh, fearful of any of the others. I mean, if you sort of saw, you've seen him closer, getting closer and closer to Nadal, particularly on the clay in the course of the last two or three years. And... There comes a point with, with somebody like Nadal who, you know, hopefully he's going to be fully fit and, and playing because he's, you know, a great entertainer. But you sort of feel that Djokovic has really earned and worked for the slight edge over the others now. I mean, I think he's beaten Andy, was it seven times in a row or, or something along those lines? And some of them have been great matches and, and Andy is so close to him and he's beaten him before that time, obviously. But at the moment, Djokovic, he has the factor, doesn't he? He has the whatever you want to call it. And, and um, he's just, he's so difficult to break down. It's somebody like Federer, um, with his aggressive game style, where he's not holding back and just, uh, you know, plays a game which, if anybody is, is going to make Djokovic uncomfortable, he's the one guy on the right surface, on the right speed, like he did in the final of Dubai. You know, he's got the, he's got the, um, the ability to, to do that on any given day. But I think Djokovic has really sort of taken over and owned that number one position over the course of the last two or three years. And he's dealt with all comers. He's been fortunate that he's, and he's worked no doubt to keep himself in prime, pristine condition. And the others have struggled a little bit. The other thing he's, he's, he's done is he's worked on his mentality. He actually says the, reason, the main reason that he hired Boris Becker was a psychological one. He wanted to get the input from a guy who'd been in those positions. Now, you shared a court with Boris Becker on the other end of the court. I mean, what what are you dealing with there? What what does he bring? Well, Boris Boris, when he was playing, um, he he. Uh, I mean, he obviously he brought a huge game, a huge game. But he brought um, so much confidence. You know, when you when you saw him at the other end, I mean, and even some of the time when he wasn't playing particularly well, just his sheer self-belief was something that would get him through situations. I mean, I, I hesitate to say in the, in the in the nicest sense of the word, there was like an arrogance about him. Do you know, do you know what I mean? I mean, he and he was just such a, a brutal strength. Nothing was going to phase him. You'd never see him intimidated by anybody or anything. And and the outcome 
of, of most of his sort of his matches and his titles were always on his terms. And if you if you wanted somebody you know to stand up to the plate at a certain time, it would have been Boris. And and just some people have that. You know, I, I think McEnroe has that as well. I mean, he's a winner. Boris Boris was a winner. Okay, he's not won the most slams of anybody or anything like that. And but but when he was meant to win and had to win, he did. D- d- does that make sense? And I think. I think it makes a big difference when someone like Djokovic, I mean, Boris is such a, an intimidating figure and, and, and represents everything because everyone remembers him as a 17-year-old winning Wimbledon is just like boom, boom, Becker or whatever it was. It's never really left him. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, just that name conjures up the image to people who don't know him. And, and that's sort of what it does in the, in the coaching box to Djokovic as well. I think he's, I, I must admit, when I started, I thought it was a very strange choice. Because I, I, I mean, I didn't know if Boris was going to be able to commit the time to it. I think most of us questioned whether that, of all those little uh, uh, partnerships that <coughs> developed around that spell, would would uh, make a difference or not. Just before we 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 finish off with the three questions that I've got from listeners that I've noted down here. Djokovic or Nadal for the French Open, as things stand. You're talking about a guy who's won it nine times. And he's only ever been beaten in one match in a decade at the French Open. And yet suddenly a lot of people are saying that another man, Novak Djokovic, is the favourite to win the title this year. I said last week on the tennis podcast that that is nonsense and that Rafael Nadal is a different beast when he gets out at the French Open. I'm only starting to get a little bit nervous, Jeremy, about my prediction there. Djokovic all the way. Moving on. (laughs) You want me to elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Nadal's record is astonishing. I mean, I love watching the guy play on the clay. His record is incredible. But, you know, as is inevitable, things move on. Things change. I mean, everyone sort of says, oh, because he's won it nine times, he's going to win it ten times. Because he won it ten times, he's going to win it eleven times. Well, sooner or later, he has to go pop. And right now, Djokovic is in the driving seat, in my view. I mean, Nadal is, is not playing well. He's not winning the... didn't win the first clay court tournament he played, did he? Um, he lost to Vadasco a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he'll play on the clay leading up to start playing unbelievably well. But I think, it's only my view, I think Djokovic thinks that, that he's going to get Nadal. And he's, he's been very close. And uh, I've been saying it for a while, so it's not just in answer to your question. Fascinating. Oh, just given that we're, we, we quite like our predictions on the tennis podcast. Oh. Catherine Whitaker and myself go head to head every week. And incidentally, I, as, as I speak, I'm winning 26 15 in our, in our weekly uh, uh, contests. And uh, we, we actually predicted uh, the Isner against Johnson match today, which we both got right. So uh, nobody's made up any ground there. But Wimbledon will be shortly following that uh, at the French Open. It's a different type of scenario isn't it because you've got half a dozen players who really know how to play well on grass don't you and and it's would you say it's probably Andy Murray and Roger Federer's best chance of getting back in the Grand Slam winner circle um more than likely yeah I think so I mean but I think also the US Open I mean uh, the US Open of course I mean depends you know obviously each year they're they sort of there's slightly different pace and what have you and a lot depends on the weather and things like that but but the grass is so unique that it takes you know the vast majority of the draw out of you know possible contention there's far less upsets at Wimbledon than there are and you know any of the other slams and they've obviously both won as well so you know they're, they're not not strangers to that stage so Wimbledon Wimbledon is probably the best chance I agree what well, at Wimbledon this year Djokovic <laughs> you asked me if it's a hey. Is he going to win the calendar year slam then? Well, let's. I mean, he's got to get through the French first. But I, you know, I, I think that if he gets through the French, um, 
It's possible. It's possible. Oh dear, oh dear, Jeremy Bates. Good guest here on the Tennis Podcast. Just before we finish up, three questions from our listeners at Tennis Podcast on Twitter. Ewan McQueen says, when you beat Andre Agassi, <coughs> when you beat Andre Agassi in 1986 at the US Open, did you have any idea that he'd turn out to be a great? Now, here's you've just told us earlier on in the show that you didn't particularly like the US Open. You beat Andre Agassi. No, he was about 12 at the time. It's <laughs> <laughs> like... No, I mean, um, I always remember the match. I remember it very clearly because um, people, it, it was, I think it was his first US Open. And he, um, I had to ask all the other guys if they knew who he was. He was a wild card entrant. And I had an unbelievably tough match with him. And I think he was 16, 17. And um, I beat him 7-5 in the fourth set. And I always remember one outstanding thing. It's because I, I tried to play pretty aggressive tennis. And I was always coming in. And the amount of times I got passed by the guy from seemingly absolutely impossible positions, I couldn't believe it. I, I never experienced it. I mean, he was hitting winners from, from goodness knows where. And that thing always stood out in my mind. And, yeah, I mean, he was very young. And we had a tough match. We played, like, three and a half hours or something. It was stinking hot. Um, and uh, that was the one. I remember that. And I also remember there was, like, a, a, a Boletari cheer squad on the side of the court as well trying to be, <laughs> trying to upset me as much as possible. And I, try, I was trying my best not to bite on any of it, which I, which I have to say I didn't do. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, that was, that was my abiding memory. And then... Um, I played him about three years later at Lipton, um, which is now Miami, um, when we played five set matches there and got absolutely smoked um, when he was three in the world. And, I, I, and the guy was playing a different sport to me at the time. And I, I don't know what I was ranked. I was probably ranked about 70 or 80 or something. I have no idea. And he was three in the world. And bearing in mind, I'd played you know, all, all the guys in the top 10 pretty much. He was playing a different sport to me. And what did he look like? <laughs> He had a lot of hair. <laughs> and he had a lot of very bright shorts and things like that. Yeah. Sure did. And he, goodness me, could he hit some passing shots and returns. Now, uh, at Sylvia says, Hello, do you think serve and volley players could stand a chance nowadays? If you think about the best of the serve and volley players, if you put McEnroe in this year, if you put Sampras in it, Edberg. If they were playing against the modern-day players, 100%. On the right surface, not on a clay court, but if you play them on, if you play them on grass, you play them on a hard court, if Sampras or McEnroe or, or Edberg was, was serve volleying against these guys, I mean, the debate is like, oh, you know, the technology is so good with the frames and the strings, and now everyone's got so much spin and they wind up and hit the ball too hard. I reckon if you put any of those guys up against some of these baseline players and they serve and volleyed every ball, the serve volley would win every time. Wow. So... Could somebody come out now and say, actually, I'm, I'm not going to beat these guys from the baseline. I'm going to develop myself as a servant volley. Or if a coach decided all of my players off the production line from now on are going to be servant volleyers to counteract these amazing baseliners, could you, could you produce somebody? Well, I think, I mean, the, na- the players that we, we mentioned, obviously, were exceptional. You know, we, we talked about Edberg, McEnroe, um, these guys, and Sampras. They are absolutely exceptional all number one in the world and um you know i mean borg borg was the only one and connors to an extent who were competitive against not not against sampras so much but i mean um against mcenroe connors and borg were sort of the the counteract to to someone like mcenroe playing they're not going to win all the time and as a general question you know okay if you put them against nadal they'd probably struggle if you put them against Djokovic and murray you know you might end up with 50 50 if you put them against the rest of the general population they're winning every time wow 
And finally, at Emerald229 says, what's your prediction? Now, I should, uh, should give you a, a bit of info here that we, we had a very similar question to John McEnroe uh, on the tennis podcast a few months ago. And the question was, give us the next first time slam winner on the men's side so somebody who hasn't won a slam yet who's going to who's going to be the next one now john McEnroe told us that it was going to be grigor dimitrov at wimbledon this year yeah that was a couple of months ago i, I was going to say dimitrov i i not i wouldn't i wouldn't say um it's you could be that specific but uh, dimitrov would be the one i would choose i, I don't see i don't see nishikori doing it i guess uh, i don't see rayanik doing it necessarily um and I and I, in my heart of hearts, it's probably easy to say, but I, I would say it's another a year or so away from Dimitrov, a year or two years, a little bit that little bit more maturity. He's getting closer and closer. Um, and the grass, he is one of the the unique players who who's got an all court game who could play very well on the grass. But that would that would be he would be my best bet. Yeah. Great stuff. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that just agree with Mac. By the way, it's like <laughs> no, I don't want to agree with him. No, well, Jeremy, it's been absolutely fantastic having you with us here on the tennis podcast. Catherine Whitaker, sunning yourself in Monte Carlo. Hope you're enjoying yourself. You're still behind in the predictions. We've had a better half an hour than you have, haven't we, Jeremy Bates? That was a lot of fun. Thanks very much for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.